Okay, good morning everyone. If you've got a Bible, can you go to Exodus chapter 20 please? Exodus chapter 20, that's where we're going to be looking at today. Verse 14. Again, let me apologize for my croaky voice, recovering from laryngitis for those who are listening on the audio. That's why I don't sound quite my normal self. Now, what we've been doing is we've been going through our current sermon series is based around the Ten Commandments which in the English translation are about 300 words. And these 300 or so words have had a massive impact on Western society and civilization and laws and way things have been set up. And go back even 100 years, they were foundational teaching in the church. Actually, for new believers, they were taught three things. They were taught the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed as their kind of basic discipleship. And so what we thought we'd do is we'd have a little look at those, and we hopefully we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed over the next 12 months as well. Now, the Ten Commandments come in uh, a part of our Bible we call the Law. The first five books collectively are known as the Law, as the law and within them there are many laws that were applied to the people of God um, uh, as a nation, and they can be broken into sort of three areas. We have the ceremonial law, which to do with the sacrifices and the tabernacle, later the temple, about how people relate to God. There was the civil law, how the nation of Israel as a people were to be governed. And then there was the moral law, which was how um, they were to live and conduct themselves. And the Ten Commandments come under that kind of the, the broad heading of the moral law, how people are to live. And the law had a purpose, which is why it's still in our Bible the people of God and for us now, it, it shows us how to live. The law is important because it tells us how to live. It tells us what's right and wrong. We also know the law restrains sin because if you know there's a law and there's a punishment for breaking it, you're less likely to break the law. We have that today. We don't drive too fast. We don't want to get points on our license and a speeding fine. So it restrains sin. But finally and most importantly, the law shows us a need for a savior because when we examine the law, we look into it, we realize we cannot keep it. We are not good enough um, to follow the law. So it points us towards Jesus and we need a savior. And talking of Jesus, the wonderful thing about him when he came was he fulfilled the law completely. He fulfilled the ceremonial law, the sacrifices, temple, tabernacle. Jesus came. He was the ultimate sacrifice, the lamb of God who takes away sin in the world, which is why we don't have to do, there are no more sacrifices. We don't need them. Because Jesus has filled that completely and perfectly. The book of Hebrews goes through a lengthy um, explanation of this. We have the civil law is fulfilled in Christ because he, he took what was the nation of Israel, a particular people in a particular place, and expanded it. That we are now um, the people of God in all nations all over the world, all ethnicities, all backgrounds, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues. And so we actually come under the law of those nations in which we live rather than one particular nation. And the moral law, again, Jesus fulfilled this perfectly um, in the fact that he lived sinless without any uh, mistakes in his life or falling short of God's standards. And what we also find, though, is that moral law is still binding on us today as believers because much of it is repeated into the New Testament. And so the context of these commandments we've been looking at is the people of God. Um, God promised Abraham that he would make them into a people and then give them a land, and that has been fulfilled. We see uh, the beginning of end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. They go down into Egypt, the story of Joseph that we've looked at here as a church, and then they grow into the mighty nation, and you get the ten plagues. Moses leads them out. They come out into the land, um, into the mountain that God had said, come to, worship me. And on that, in that context, he gives them these commandments. 
And the point of these commandments are not to get you to God, to make God accept you, to make God um, make you more acceptable to God or make you feel like you're better or more righteous. Actually, God gave them to a people he'd already freed, a people he'd already shown mercy and grace to. And so actually, there are ways we act and we live in response to what God has done, which is why we call the sermon series Free to Live. That you've been set free, this is therefore how you live. And we've been going through these commandments as a church to kind of look at what they mean for us now. How do we apply them? How do we live as God's free people? And so what we've looked at so far, we've looked at the first table of the law, which were the first four commandments, which were vertical in origin. They kind of dealt with our relationship with God. And we've looked at the first commandment, which you have no other gods before me, he said, because they'd come from Egypt, which had many gods. And we've seen that in our world today, there are many things that people give their time and energy and sacrifice for, things people worship for. We've seen the second commandment, which you are to worship the right God the right way. It's not just good having the right God. You need to worship in the way he asks you, in spirit and truth. The third commandment, we are to honor God's name because it represents who he is, his character, and everything about him. So we honor him, and we are to keep his day, his special day today, and come and worship him on that day. So they're very much all about God and loving God. And then the second table of law, which we've begun, which is the final six commandments, are more horizontal, how we deal with our neighbors. The first one we looked at in the sixth commandment was that it starts with our home, and we are to honor our parents And that then broadens out into all society, that we are to honor those in authority over us. And then the seventh commandment, which we looked at last week, which is um, about not murdering and the attitude of heart that comes with that and what it means to preserve life and keep it whole. And so those commandments, the two tables of law can be summed up like Jesus says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, which is what we're exploring. And so today we've come to the seventh commandment. The one that everyone's been waiting for. You knew all this was coming, by the way, because we count down, we go through them. So well done for being here this week. And so what we've got is the seventh commandment. We put it up, and it says this. I will read the text to you. You shall not commit adultery. That's it. That's what we've got today. So this, like last week, is another delicate subject, which I will endeavor my way to pick my way through it Um, and it can be full of sensitive subjects and shameful subjects for some people and hurtful subjects for some people but I just want you to know that God loves you he is for you he wants to forgive you and help you forgive others involved in this and so please bear with me as we kind of roll through this and sort of pick our way through what God wants to say to us and then some application at the end. What I want to look at today is at the what, the why, and the how of this commandment, and then we'll try and pull it together with some application to finish. First of all, the what of this commandment, what's it talking about? Well, this is a simple commandment. Like last week's, which was you shall not murder, this one is simply you shall not commit uh, adultery. And adultery in this context is defined as uh, a marital infidelity sexually breaking the marriage covenant. So this law is designed to protect marriage, ultimately, first and foremost. It is a law designed to detect marriage. So before we look at kind of the adultery, let's just have a quick look at marriage, what it means biblically, because if we're going to look at what it means to break that marriage covenant, we need to know what we're talking about. Now, the biblical marriage can be defined a number of ways. I've got three quick things I just want to look at to when we're defining biblical marriage, what the Bible says about it. First, three Cs. First one is complementarity. 
Biblical marriage is about complementarity. It's one man, one woman for life. It says in Genesis 2.18, the Lord said it is not good for man to be alone. Every woman says amen. I will make a helper suitable for him. So they were created differently, man and woman. We read the Genesis account. They had different roles. The woman there are described as a helper. That is not an inferior role. That is the same word used to describe God the Holy Spirit as the helper, the one who comes alongside. So that is not a demeaning thing. That is an incredibly exalting thing. But they are different. And everyone with any sense will look at men and women and see they're different in so many ways. Not just physically, but emotionally all those things. So marriage is about complementarity between the man and a woman coming together who are different but completely equal, serving alongside one another and loving each other. Second C is children. It says in verse 128, uh, Genesis 128, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that rules on the ground. When you get to come together, man and woman, An outworking of that most often is children. In a marriage covenant, men and women come together, they make a covenant together that is then um, ratified, consummated by sex, and in most cases the outworking of that is for them to have children. And the final C is for Christ and the church. It says in Ephesians, wives submit your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. It says later, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. There is something about marriage that points to Jesus and the church. It is more than just an earthly, legal arrangement between two people. It is about a oneness that is a shadow of something so much greater. Marriage, as we see it today, is important and good, but it points to something bigger and better, which is Christ's connection with his church and his people and that joining and that union. And so when we talk about biblical marriage, it is elevated beyond the earthly to something eternal and majestic. And we actually find as we read our Bible that actually in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be no marriage but there will be Christ and his church. And so what we, we enjoy today is something that points to something so much bigger and better. Now, this biblical marriage, one of the things that marks it different from every other relationship you have on the earth is the sexual dynamic. That the man and the woman, the husband and the wife have come together and they are to have sex. Be fruitful and multiply, he says. There should be a oneness, a coming together. And sex is a gift from God. Just read the Song of Songs. If you have not read that book in the Bible, sometimes it's surprising what we find in our Bibles. You read that one, which is a celebration of um, sex between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. So sex is not just for procreation, but it's also relational and recreational. It's about bringing oneness between um, the husband and the wife. In the Church of England marriage ceremony, some of you will have experienced or heard of, it says the gift of marriage brings husband and wife together in the delight and tenderness of sexual union and joyful commitment to the end of their life. Sex is like the superglue that sticks a couple together, that oneness bringing together. Husbands and wives should be having sex, the Bible says. It says in 1 Corinthians 7, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Sometimes it's translated sexual needs. So the husband should give to her wife her sexual needs and likewise the wife to her husband. 
Some of you might want to underline that verse. 1 Corinthians 7.3. There is an expectation of sex between a husband and wife. And this commandment given to the people of God was designed to protect that. And it begins by talking about adultery. Now, why does it start with adultery? And the reason it starts with adultery, you shall not commit adultery, is because that is the highest form of sexual sin. In the commandments, because sometimes what they do is when they write, they did it last week when they looked at murder, they take the highest form of a category. Murder is the highest form of sin in terms of killing someone, premeditated, cold-blooded murder. But we found last week that actually the Bible actually says there are other things that come under that category, the idea of voluntary and involuntary manslaughter as well, which also God doesn't want and doesn't allow. But actually he sticks the top one there. Just as a kind of, this is the headline, everything underneath it also is a no-no, but this is the biggest one. Why did he pick adultery? Why is it the biggest one? If we look in Leviticus, it has an incredibly harsh punishment for those who commit it. The reason adultery is picked and it's considered the highest form of sexual sin is because it is the betrayal of a covenant partner. Adultery is the betrayal of a covenant partner. One member of that party is seeking to break a lifelong sacred legal covenant that has been made before God and his people. And that is why it is considered so bad, so offensive to God, and so much something that you should not do and we should not be involved with. And the, the image of adultery is actually used in other contexts to highlight the significance of sin. When God's people went off and did other, worshipped other gods... God described them as committing adultery against him because they went off and they worshipped other gods. He used that imagery to kind of show, highlight the, the, the depth that they had fallen to and what they'd done and the offense that they had caused him. Adultery also is the dishonoring of our bodies, which are made in the image of God because it is very much a physical sin and joining in the union with someone else who is not our covenant marriage partner. And so it has um, a great emphasis and a weight for us but it's also, it's more than a problem for just those who are married. You might be thinking, well, this is obviously a married person's issue, adultery. But actually, it's wider than that. And when Jesus came, he took the commandment and he broadened it and deepened it to actually apply to all of us in all contexts. Because Jesus said it was a matter of the heart. Just like with murder, there's the physical act. But Jesus said, actually, it's more than that. It's often how, it's how we think and treat and act towards other people in our language and our thoughts, adultery is the same. And Jesus used two words to highlight this. just want to um, give them to you and explain their meaning. The first one he used is the word, if I, forgive me if I get the pronunciation wrong, but eftumo, eftumio, which is a Greek word. And it basically is translated in the Bible either lustful intent or lustfully. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, he says, You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Yes, we've heard that. It's in the commandments. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully or with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. And what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about the difference between noticing and desire. You can notice she's beautiful, he's gorgeous. It's when that becomes a desire. Jesus is saying, actually, once you've gone that, down that line, it becomes, you've crossed something. Lustful intent basically means to look at someone and imagine sexual possibilities. And suddenly this now application moves from those of us who are married to every one of us who is breathing. 
we all have to take this seriously. There is lustful intent. If you are looking at someone and imagining sexual possibilities, then you have crossed that line, Jesus said. You are breaking the commandment. You are committing adultery with them in your heart. Another word Jesus used later in, in the Sermon on the Mount as well is Matthew, uh, sorry, it's Mark 7, sorry, not Matthew 7, is um, the word uh, pornea, which is um, where we get our word pornography, which is just, uh, often translated sexual immorality. It says, from what is within, out of a person's heart, um, comes things like evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, and a whole bunch of other things. But sexual immorality is that word there. And that refers to any sexual activity outside marriage. So it includes pornography, which we have, prostitution, one-night stands, friends with benefits, masturbation, which is self-pleasuring. This can be online or in person. Any sexual activity that occurs outside a marriage covenant. Jesus is saying, actually, that qualifies as well in breaking this covenant. So what we see is uh, when we say you shall not commit adultery, it's not just a narrow definition for an individual who's married running off with someone else. Actually, it's suddenly for all of us in terms of any sexual activity we're involved in outside the covenant of marriage that is made before God and his people. And so this applies to all of us in all and every situation. It has an external dynamic, things we do, but it also has a very strong internal dynamic, how we think, how we act. And we've also seen, when we looked at these commandments, we've seen both a positive and negative. Some are stated positively, the commandments, honor your father and your mother. That's a positively stated commandment. Last week we looked at you shall not murder. That's a negatively stated commandment. But each side has a flip, so you can state it both ways. So for this one, the negative is you shall not commit adultery. The positive way of stating that would be pursue sexual purity. What this command is asking us to do is to pursue sexual purity. That is what it's asking us to do. So that's the what of this commandment. Now let's look at number two, the why of this commandment. What is the big deal about this one? Why did this make the ten? Why did God decide for all eternity to stick this one in his great list that would be binding on all people for all times? The simple answer is this. To be involved in adultery and all those things around it is dangerous, even deadly. Like a loving father, a loving parent who wants the best for his children and to keep them safe and to teach them and train them, God is giving us this commandment to protect us, to keep us safe, to keep others safe around us because sex is dangerous and deadly when used incorrectly. God is the designer of sex. God is the designer of marriage. He put it all together. He knows how it works best. And so if we want to use it the best and get the best out of it, we need to refer to what the designer intended for it and listen and learn to him. And sex is incredibly powerful and good, but must be handled very well to get the best out of it. Uh, The best illustration I can find or I can think of that works for this is sex is like fire. Fire is great. It can warm your home. It can be a beautiful centerpiece to a room where everyone gathers around and enjoys it. Or it can burn your house to the ground and kill everyone in it if used incorrectly. Fire has that potential. It can be wonderful. You can keep you warm. You can save lives. You can cook on it and do all these great things or it can kill everybody. And sex is like that. If used well, 
It can be brilliant. If used wrongly, it can kill and destroy. And the Bible is full of warnings about adultery, about sex, about the misuse of it, and illustrations. We looked at the book of Proverbs a couple of years back. We went through the first kind of nine chapters, which are the intro of the book, and saw what God's wisdom was for us as his people, and how that pointed to Jesus. And there were lengthy sections about this issue that came up. I'm going to read a few bits to, her, a few bits to you about that. It says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry a fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetites when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay back sevenfold. He will give goods to his house. He or she who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. And the Bible is also full of illustrations of what this looks like practically working out. The greatest of these, many of you will know, is of King David. King David is the most prominent character in the Bible outside our Lord Jesus in terms of number of references or information we have about him. He was a mighty warrior. He was used powerfully by God. He was described as a man after God's own heart, which is an incredible accolade to have. Yet he fell foul of this commandment and completely mucked up. We find in 2 Samuel uh, 11, verse 1, it says this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about her, and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the white of Eliam, sorry, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then he returned her to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So we have King David, the king of Israel, that God has elevated from a shepherd boy up to be the leader of his people who wanted for nothing. He had fame, he had glory, he was a mighty warrior. He ruled over God's people. Yet he was, first of all, he was in the wrong place. It says it was that time of year in the spring where you go out to fight. David wasn't doing his job. He wasn't at work where he should have been with his men fighting God's enemies. The Ammonites at that time, who would have been oppressing God's people, and he should have been out there. He wasn't there. He was doing his own thing. He was being lazy. He was taking time off. He was wandering around, bored, nothing to do. And he saw Bathsheba, who was, it's described as, very beautiful. Uh, this, is the, this is the decision point. He sees someone. She's beautiful. She was bathing. So imagine she wasn't even clothed. The look then became desire. Not only is she hot, I like her and I want her. 
Then it says, then it says, it just gets away. He says, then he acquired of her. Who is she? Who's the hot girl who lives in the house over there with the roof? And they said, well, that's someone else's wife, David. They even told you who his wife. And we know if you read the story that Uriah was one of his men. So one of your men who's out fighting, that's his wife. What did David do? He sent for her. He's the king. He can do that. He has great power and authority. He sleeps with her. And then the result at the end, the punchline, verse 5, oh, I'm pregnant. And what we find there is David falling into sin and breaking this commandment by committing adultery with another man's wife. And if you follow the story through, you see it doesn't just have that as like, okay, you've done that, that's bad enough. It leads to deception, lying, and then ultimately murder of that lady's husband. He is killed to try and cover up the crime. God, in his grace and mercy, exposes it. David, to his credit, repents. Um, but it causes all sorts of problems and ramifications in his life. And just interestingly, that verse I read out from Proverbs, it says this. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. That verse is actually fulfilled in David because I don't know how many thousand years, it, what years ago it was when David did this. But guess what? We're still talking about it. It's still there. We're still talking about what David did. He lacked sense. And in the end, it led to all sorts of problems. So the why, why do we not, why do we have this commandment? Because it's dangerous to break it. It's deadly to break it. Lots of things can happen. Hurt and pain and suffering come through it. Okay, let's look. we've done the what, we've done the why. How about the how? How does this kind of work out for us today? Well, I don't know if you've realized, but we live in an unprecedented age of sexual awareness, sexual kind of promiscuity, sexual kind of content that is available to us. We live in a sex-saturated culture. What was limited for previous generations, even my own reflecting back, if you wanted content, uh, sexual content or access to it, you had to have, there was magazines on the top shelf that were covered up or there were adult places that only adults could go and they were tucked away and you'd have to go and find them. Those kind of places that was more hidden, now it's kind of everywhere and free-for-all. The internet has made sex available to the masses anytime, any place, anywhere. And so the opportunities to break this commandment in its broadest sense are boundless. Internet pornography means that sexual content is anonymous, accessible, and affordable. You can access it and no one will know. It's, um, no one will know it's you. You can get it without trying and it doesn't cost you anything, monetary-wise anyway. And so it's just there. Most, I read, most uh, internet pornography now is accessed via smartphones or tablets, small devices, so we can literally carry it wherever we go. Internet pornography, a few stats just to bring this home. It says 12% of websites on the internet are pornographic, which is nearly 25 million of them. 
two in three men uh, are viewers of pornography. That means one in three women are viewers of pornography. 70% of men aged between 18 and 24 visit uh, pornographic sites uh, in a typical month. Uh, the worldwide revenue from internet pornography, when this was taken, was $5 billion uh, a year. $5 billion, this is US dollars uh, a year. 25 of all searches on the internet, internet search engine searches, are pornographically related. Uh, 35% of all downloads on the internet are pornographically related. Uh, 20, uh, sorry, 34% of internet users have experienced unwanted exposure to porn, either through pop-up ads or through emails, those kind of things. There are over 11, uh, sorry, 116,000 searches for child pornography every day. The average age that a child sees porn for the first time is age 11. Top end of primary school. 20% of men admit to watching porn online at work. 13% of women do it. The most popular day for watching porn is Sunday. And the average porn site visit lasts 6 minutes and 39 seconds. It's everywhere. And we've got... It's all around us all the time. But it's not just that. There's actually sex is all over the place. Advertising. Just advertising products that we need and want for life. We know that sex sells. You don't often see something without a gorgeous hunk of a man or a scantily clad woman kind of alongside it to attempt you and say, actually, you should have this. We know news stories. Which news stories are the ones that seem to sell and seem to get our attention? They're usually ones with salacious gossip, scandal, who's sleeping with whom, whose marriage is on the rocks, all those kind of things. TV and film is becoming more and more graphic and prevalent in its display of sexual content. I read a stat that said uh, there's a ratio of 10 to 1 sex on television and in film is portraying sex outside marriage. We also have uh, websites and apps, Tinder, uh, which started, I think it was 2002, I think I looked up, um, now um, has over a billion swipes a day where you can find people you want to hook up with and get to know you just swipe left for one and swipe right for the other and it connects you together. The, the, the website, uh, the, or the, it was a website that was um, a da- proved to be a dating app, Ashley Madison which began in 2002 with the tagline, Life is short, have an affair. It was designed particularly for married individuals who wanted to have an affair. They could use this dating website to find a partner who was also married so that you could hook up and then not talk about it. In 2015, sorry, I shouldn't laugh about this. In 2015, the website was hacked and the data of those who'd used the website was published on the web, which... Draw your own conclusions from that. Um, but it was probably illegal, but yeah, that's what happened. We also have lewd jokes, sexual innuendo is prevalent in working cultures. You might be in cultures where that's just normal. Those kind of things are said and done, even though frowned upon in some areas. It's kind of what happens. So it's around us in all areas. These areas of temptation and kind of sexual content is something we just have to deal with. So let's kind of land this and we'll look at a few bits of application for us today as a church. How do we kind of navigate our way through this and stay true to God's command to us as his people? 
Well, I've got two things. First one is particularly for those who are married. The second one is for all of us. So number one, protect your marriage. If you are married here today, do everything in your power to protect your marriage. You are up against it. You are up against the pressures of life, money, work, family, children, etc. You are up against culture, which is tempting you in every possible which way to go and find new experiences and do new things. And the new is always appears much more exciting. The grass is always looks much more greener. You also have an enemy who hates you and wants to destroy you and everything that God has done in it. And if he can get you to trip up in this area, he will be well on his way to doing that. The cost of failure in your marriage is absolutely huge. Is absolutely huge. There is the, the personal damage to your own life of a marriage breakdown, which leaves scars that last decades, the whole life. There is the damage to your wider family, children, if they're involved. There is a financial cost implication for uh, what happens as a result of this. And even the damage to our society as a whole, as family and marriages break down, they are the building blocks God puts in to protect our society and keep it stable. And so do everything you can to protect your marriage. How would you do this? Well, I want to suggest some homework for this week. And I want to suggest you do one thing. I would love you to have an honest conversation with your spouse. Have an honest conversation with your spouse. Set aside time where it's just the two of you. I don't know how that would work for you, an afternoon, an evening. If you're struggling, find another married couple and say, we'll swap. We'll cover your kids for two hours while you go and do that. You cover ours for two hours while we go and do this. Work together on this. Make this happen. But have an honest conversation. Have an MOT on your marriage. Ask about the following areas and assess them for areas of strength and weakness. Talk about your communication. How are we at talking to one another? Are we being heard? Do we feel we're being heard by each other when we talk about life and things are going on? Do I feel like you're listening to me or your face stuck in a screen? Ask about your money and finances, how that's going, and you feel the pressures of that. And I found in our experience that couples feel different pressures at different times over different things, so it's good to talk about them. So what about family and children? If you have uh, kids, uh, the pressures with the in-laws, wider family that can come and push in on a marriage, talk about them. Talk about your sex life. How is it going? Are we enjoying it? Am I enjoying it? Are you enjoying it? Is it working for us? Do we need to be doing this more often? Do we need to be blocking time in on a weekly basis to make sure we are connecting with one another physically? What about our general health for fun and leisure? Are we laughing and talking together and just enjoying each other? Because if you are married, that should be your best friend. Are we having fun together? Give each other permission to be honest and grit your teeth when they do it. Because the natural reaction sometimes is just to bite back, which doesn't help. But just be honest with me. Let's have a conversation about this. No area should be off limits. No area should be like, we can't go and talk about that. We have to push through. So have a honest conversation. Next thing, once you've done that, make a plan. 
based on what you've talked about. Well, we need to look at this area. We need to work on this area. We need to do that. That might need to get some counsel or some prayer or some help or just read a book on something or just bring some, someone in if necessary. If it's, if it's outside of us, maybe we can just go and talk to them and say, help us with this, with our, getting our finances in order, helping us communicate together, having fun together, whatever it is. Even if it's you're struggling with your sex life, you need some people to come and just say, let's just talk about this and see what we can do to be helpful. Group leaders, if you're in a life group leadership here or oversight here, please make sure this is happening in your groups. Make sure, ask the couples, the married couples in your group, have you had that conversation? You don't need no details, don't ask unless they want to tell. But ask them, have they had it? Have they had the conversation? And if they haven't, hound them till they do. And so they're actually talking to their spouse and they're making their marriage work. Ask one another. Guys, ask guys. Girls, ask girls. Husband, find another husband that you know well. Have you had that chat with your wife yet? And ladies, do the same. To make sure it's happening, that we are doing everything in our power to protect our marriage. Ask one another, not just this week, but regularly, particularly in the area of your sex life. How's it going? Is it working? Have you let it fall off kind of the radar? My experience, our experience in counseling people pastorally over the last nearly 20 years is the first thing to go in a marriage is the sex life when things are tough. It's like the thermometer, the thermometer of your, your marriage. How do you check? How's it going? Check that one first because that can then... One, if that's working, it's amazing what else falls into place in my experience. So don't be afraid to ask, talk about it and do everything we can on that. Number two, last one. Preserve your purity. Preserve your purity. This is for all of us. First thing, make a choice today, right now, to do things God's way. He loves you. He is for you. He wants good for you, and he knows best. He is a perfect heavenly father who wants you to have a fulfilled life. And in this area, he needs you to do it his way if you want to get the best out of the life he's given you. Regardless of what's happened in your past, regardless of what you feel like you've failed in or got wrong, make a decision today to pursue him and pursue purity all the days of your life. Job says in um, chapter 31, verse 1, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look at a woman lustfully. Make that covenant today. I will not pursue looking at someone who is not my spouse lustfully. If you are single here, save as much as you can for marriage. Do everything in your power that if one day God blesses you with a spouse, that you've saved as much as you possibly can. Next thing, do everything you can to flee from temptation. Where are you most tempted? What are you watching that is just not helpful? TV, films internet are there places you go people you hang out with times of day where you are most vulnerable are you aware of that have you told people that have you said this is where i'm falling down these are the things are there things you need to stop i made a decision when i was about 21 uh, when i was at university that i would just stop watching films that were certificate 18 and tv shows now because they're all certificated they're 18 just because i just didn't i wasn't helpful what's in them there's a reason they've got that number on the box. So I just said, do you know what? I can usually cope with a bit of violence and even swearing. Sexual content will get me every time. But I thought, if I just cut that out, 
it just pushes something away from me that I don't have to deal with. And so that's a decision I made. That's not a law. That's just a personal commitment that I made that I thought, do you know what, I'm just going to avoid that because that's helpful for me. When you watch stuff on TV, are you just blindly consuming it or are you critiquing it? I find myself falling down this so often. I love watching drama series. Men and I, we watch box sets and it's great fun. But, but sometimes you can just passively consume. It's sometimes good to critique. What am I actually watching? What's happening? You suddenly find yourself rooting for the hero who is going to cheat on their spouse because that is a, portrayed as a loveless marriage and they're going to run off with someone who looks a lot better. And you suddenly find yourself, yeah, go on. So I think, what am I watching? Why am I thinking this? Is this right? Talk about what you're actually watching with whoever you're watching with and actually call it out for what it is. This is glorifying adultery. That is not helpful and that is not what God would want. Another suggestion is, um, have you ever heard of IMDB, the Internet Movie Database? It's a website which, if you're interested in films or TV, it is a mine of information about every TV show I think ever made and every film ever made. It gives you all the information, who's the cast, who's the director... But if you click on any particular one of them and you scroll down, you'll find something called Parents Guide. Make that your friend. Not just for if you've got kids, but for you. Because if you click on it, it will give you a graphic rundown of everything in that film or TV series that is bad language, uh, intense, frightening horror, violence, or sexual content. And I mean, literally, it will run it down. There were three incidents where you see full frontal nudity in the first episode or something like that. And it will do it. I do it with the kids. Not they're watching that kind of stuff. But, you know, you get films coming out, and my kids are moving into PG films, and I'm like, well, what kind of PG is it? You know, click on it and read it and think, do we want the kids watching this? It's a helpful thing, but it's also helpful for us because I love watching drama series. And, but I thought, okay, that sounds good. People are raving about it. Let me go and check what's in it. Oh, it seems fairly all right. So the tame end. Sometimes I've read things and think, not watching that, just because I know what's coming, and I'm going to save myself that. Please, in these situations, run like Joseph from Potiphar's wife. Because temptation will come. It will come. And some of you are facing not just things you're watching, but people you're hanging out with. And I want to say to you now, run. Some of you, when it comes to adultery, are dabbling in relationships with people in your workplaces, at school, uh, social clubs, whatever you're part of. And the, the, the look has turned to desire And that desire is waiting to go full-blown into sin and kill you. And I want to tell you now, run. Flee from temptation to everything you can. Be like Joseph. It doesn't matter what you leave behind. Joseph left his coat, didn't he? And he just had to leg it. You do the same. Flee from temptation. Run from it. Get away from it as far and as fast as you can. Third thing, confess your sin. Where you know you've strayed in this area, which we all have, Confess your sins to God. Do not keep it to yourself. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once you've failed, the worst thing you can do is let shame and guilt crush you and you not confess it and deal with it. That's exactly what the enemy would want. He'd want you to be so bowled over and so small and insignificant at what you feel that, what you've done, that you wouldn't want to bring it to Jesus and get it dealt with. We all know we've failed. We all know we've messed up. You need to bring it to God and you need to receive forgiveness. And that verse also says cleansing, which is a, a renewal of our righteousness. The stain that sin leaves can be taken away and we can stand holy and righteous before God. 
because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So you know where you fail, come to him for forgiveness. I also just want to mention those, we've talked a lot about active sin, what we do, and what we, where we fail sexually in this area, but also there will be those of us in the room who, are, who have been on the receiving end of sexual sin, which is the kind of the other side of it, which are who have been the victims of sexual sin. And this could be something that's happened recently, it could be something that's happened in the past. You've been a, vi- a victim of unwanted sexual interest and activity as an adult or even as a child. And I just want to say to you, this is, that was not your fault. You are not guilty of sin if something has happened to you, something that has been done to you, but you still may feel a sense of guilt and shame because of that kind of thing because the enemy would love to bind you up in it. I think you too need to confess that to God. You need to bring it before him and name it and expose it to the light. God knows anyway. And so acknowledgement of that, you need to tell someone that you trust that this has happened in your life and just say, look, this is where I've been. This is what's happened so they can pray with you and stand with you through that and that you can receive some healing and cleansing from God, not because of what you've done, but what has been done to you. And the enemy will use that just as much as our own failures where we go and do things to bind us down and keep us away from Jesus. The last thing, final thing, is we are to receive forgiveness. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in our place for our sin, rose bodily from death, victorious, ascended into heaven and now rules and reigns forever. And he has said he will forgive us for our sins. We stand as a believer here clothed in his righteousness. Even when we fail, we come back and we receive receive forgiveness again and again and again. And for where we failed, where we've messed up, even if it was just last night, Jesus says, come to me, come to me, come to me. I will forgive you. I will restore you. I will make you whole. The one thing David did right in all his messing up of his adultery and murder was when Nathan exposed him, he said, I have sinned against God. And he confessed it. And he was restored. And if you read Psalm 51, that is the result of that. And he was cleansed and he was restored to relationship with the Lord. And we all have that available to us today. There is nothing you could have done so bad or have been done to you so bad that God will not bring you back and restore you and accept you as his son or daughter. Amen. Let's stand. Can the band come up? I'm just going to lead us in a moment of prayer and then we're going to worship Jesus. Okay, do you want to just close your eyes and open your hands? Holy Spirit of God, we pray you come now and you fill us with your presence, Lord Jesus. Lord God, we want to thank you for the gift of marriage. Lord, we want to thank you for the gift of sex that you've given us to enjoy in that marriage contest. Thank you for the gift of children that come from that, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your grace on us, Lord God. But we come to you now as a broken people. We know we've been restored and made righteous before you, God, but we fail so often and we fall so consistently. Lord God, we thank you that your grace and your mercy is not dependent on us. It's dependent on your goodness. And we sang that will follow us all the days of our life. 
And Lord Jesus, we want to say today, we want to stand in your goodness and your grace and say we love you and we praise you. And I just want to talk to groups of people here. I want to talk to those who are married. And I want to say, do whatever you can to protect your marriage. Holy Spirit, God, we pray you come and fill us and give us grace to have tough conversations, open, honest conversations with our spouses. Lord, give us grace to do whatever it takes to strengthen our marriages and keep them whole and keep them strong before you. Give us grace to forgive and be forgiven. Give us grace to say, sorry, I messed up. Give us grace to go again where it's tough and it's painful, Lord Jesus. I pray, I want to pray for those who have been damaged by sexual sin, things that they've done or things that have been done to them. Lord, I pray you give us grace to confess and receive your forgiveness. Lord Jesus, if you know there are things now that are unconfessed before God that you've done or have been done to you, I want you to take a moment, just you and Jesus, to name it to him. He knows, but there's power in you speaking it out. Be specific. Name it. If there's something you know you need to repent of because it's a sin you've done, then do that too. Repent, turn away. And I want you now just to receive the grace of God. Receive the grace of God. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his acceptance. He loves you. He's a father who is over you, who wants good for you. And I want to pray for all of us now that we would be men and women who seek to pursue sexual purity all the days of our life. Whether we're married or single, whatever the future holds, whether that circumstance changes one way or the other, that we will seek to do that. And if you know that's something you think, yeah, I want to make that commitment today, you say something to Jesus. You make that commitment and say, God, that's what I want I want to do everything I can by your grace to follow your commands on this. Give me grace for work. Give me grace for my family. Give me grace for my social settings where I find myself. And give me grace for what I watch and what I consume. And I just want to ask, talk to those who are right on the edge of doing something stupid. You might have even thought about it. You might have even started going down that road I want to beg you now as your pastor who loves you stop please stop run away from it as far and as fast as you can a good way to do that is to tell someone tell someone tell your spouse tell a friend tell someone this is where I am this is what's going on in my head and pray for me God knows, because the path you're going down will only end in pain and destruction. It may appear good for a moment, but it won't last. And it will damage you and many, many people around you. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you are a good and loving God. We want to thank you for your grace and mercy so freely poured out on our lives. Lord Jesus, we want to praise you. We want to worship you. We want to thank you that when we fall down, though it may be many, many times, your grace is always there to lift us up pick us up and put us back on the right path. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your cleansing. We thank you for your righteousness, which we can count as our own. 
Lord Jesus, we want to say we love you. We praise you. God's people said.